Welcome to the Security Serengeti. We're your hosts, Hugh Glass and Bend Over. Stop what you're doing and subscribe to our podcast and leave us an awesome five-star review and follow us at Serengeti Sec on Twitter. We're here to talk about cybersecurity and technology news headlines and hopefully provide some insight, analysis, and practical applications that you can take in the office, help you protect your organization. The views and opinions expressed in this podcast are ours and ours alone and do not reflect the views or opinions of our employers. Did you know that it's potentially a crime to use a fake name on the internet? I did not. Yeah, surprise. So our first article is unrelated to crime. Well, actually, I guess it might not be. <laughs> well, you could call it a kind of thievery. <laughs> the 2023 Global Chief Information Security Officer Survey from Hydric.com. Hydric and Hydric and Struggles. Hydric and Struggles did the survey. <laughs> what a name. Struggles. I'm not repeating any of these that you've put on here. <laughs> what, not, not, not private struggles or general struggles? Hat tip to John for linking this to me, send it to me via email. Knew that I'd want to talk about it. So I brought it up just because I thought it'd be an interesting point of discussion. I actually once commented, I think to David about CISOs at very small community banks and how few things they had to do. But then he reminded me that even CISOs at a very small company still have a significant responsibility. Although they don't get paid nearly as much as the ones we're going to talk about. A couple of things I pulled out before we get to the money part. 30, only 30% of these CISOs sit on a board of a company, not even necessarily their own board, but other boards. Half of the CISOs, so the CISO, I could have sworn I put, okay, there we go. So I could have sworn that I put how many CISOs were interviewed in here, but I guess that would have been a better place to start, wouldn't it? Apparently there were 262 CISOs interviewed. So it was a reasonable level, but not huge. About half of them said that the board does not have the knowledge or expertise to make cybersecurity decisions. <laughs> I guess I bet they're glad this is anonymous. Yeah, I'm sure. Uh, another item cited is that 14% of board seats have someone from an actual cybersecurity background. But honestly, that actually seems about right. There's other things the board needs to care about, and people should generally be from a variety of backgrounds. Like, you don't need more mm -hmm. than one person on the board from a cybersecurity background. Right. Yeah. I'd agree with that. Uh, I mean, I, I guess I don't know how big the average board is. Yeah, I don't know either. Hold on. I'm doing a quick Google search. The average board size is 11.2 directors. All right. So one out of 11 is like 9%. So 14% yeah. is actually higher than one. I guess the question is, are they evenly distributed? <laughs> Does every company have one? Yeah, well, you get 11 people and then the leg of a CISO. <laughs> I guess point two would probably be a foot, maybe not even an entire yeah. leg. <laughs> it's not very nice to make fun of people that have been that have lost limbs. <laughs> 1.6 board members. He lost both of, both of his legs. Uh, all right. For the 70% that don't, I'm actually curious if there's a reason. 91% said they wanted to serve on a company's board. I, I actually had a coworker probably 15 years ago that put in their LinkedIn that they wanted to serve on a board and they were open to serving on any board. And apparently it worked. They're a CEO of a company now. Where they were, yeah. I, I just, just interesting. I, I don't know how people pick the folks to sit on a board. I know generally it's like CEOs of other company or people with specialized knowledge or investors. Yeah. I'm wondering if it's the perception that cybersecurity folks are one-trick ponies. They don't have broad knowledge of other aspects that could benefit mm -hmm. the board. 
Yeah. Oh, well, you just know security and, you know, yours just can tell us not to do things, which is why they don't get board seats or something like that. Well, I will never serve on a board probably. So <laughs> seems like easy money. Probably isn't. Probably not easy. So, okay. So in terms of compensation, there's an interesting range presented here. Okay. So it was 16% of the 262 orgs have less than a billion. So there were a few CISOs, but this is very heavily weighted towards organizations that have a lot of revenue. The median in the US was 1.1 million of that 620,000 in cash, almost 500,000 in equity. And the highest was 5.3 million. Oof. I know, right? In the EU, the median was 552,000, half of the US, although the cash was about 75%, 457,000, and equity was only 100,000 versus 500,000 for US. Also, the highest was only 930,000. So again, they only had 226 respondents. Maybe there were only a few in the EU, but that's very suggestive and weird. In Australia, the average median was 586,000, which is about the same, but this was interesting. There was less cash than Europe and more equity than Europe. And the highest in Australia was 2 million. You know, I wonder if that has to do with the tax schemes in each one. Ooh, you're probably right. Because the highest in the US was only about a million cash. I mean, it was five point. So this is actually weird. The chart said the highest was 5.33 million all the way on the right for total compensation. But the total cash was 1.1 million. And the total equity was like well, maybe it was 1 million and 4.8. Like it didn't actually add up to 5.3. It added up to more, but the highest was a lot more equity than it was cash, like four times as much equity as cash. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That would make sense for the United States where capital gains tax is only yeah. 20% versus, you know, 30 to 40% on cash. No, and you're, yeah. And you're right. And that's because that's the general, at least that's the story I've heard, right? Is as soon as they taxed equity at capital gains, more and more top-level executives' compensation was given as equity, the intent being that they would be more focused on the success of the company. Right. And pay less in taxes. <laughs> so this also reminds me of how doctors make different amounts per country. Uh, I looked up and the average amount a doctor makes in the US is 316,000 versus Germany, 160,000, the UK, 140,000, and Mexico, 12,000. But it's interesting, the European countries are about half of what the US doctors make. Yeah. Well, that's because the United States has a quote unquote free market and they have socialized medicine in Germany and the UK. So they're government employees in those locations. So they're trading their, uh, their salary for, you know, protection from, uh, liability and for, uh, job security and other benefits of being a government employee. Yeah, I'm actually curious. I don't know where I would find a chart or what I would have to search for this, but I'd be super interested to see like the 25th percentile salary in the US compared against Germany, compared against like the 50th percentile salary, et cetera. Mm. Like to see if it's flatter in general. Mm-hmm. So anyways, it seems to be the US is a great country if you're upper middle class or higher. <laughs> you're going to get paid about twice as much as a lot of other places. Although I was looking at this and I went and I went and looked if to be in the top 25% of households in the US, you have to be making over 113,000. To be over the top 10%, you have to be making, I think it was 213,000 or something. So really, if you're working in security and you've got anybody else working in your house, you're probably at least in the top 10%. Because security analysts start in the 50 to 60,000 range in low cost of living areas and you know near 100,000 in high cost of living areas. 
Mm-hmm. So, and apparently CISOs make a million dollars on average. <laughs> so that puts them squarely in the 1%. Doctors don't quite make the 1%. They're like, they're like the 98th percentile. Yeah. I'm sure there are outliers there. Also. Yeah. 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 If you're a specialist, you make more. Yeah. It's um, not like, you know, I can't remember if we talked about this before, but do you know on average what the top 10 hedge fund managers make a year? Oh God. I I don't know that I want to know. A billion dollars on average. Yeah. Well, I mean, that's why some people work so hard in high school and college to, you know, top schools, they can get hired into the finance industry and spend that first five years grinding so, okay, some other compensation items. The US, the bottom 25th percentile of commission of compensation, the total is as low as $560,000. Wow. <laughs> like I said, the top 95th percentile was 5.33 million. So that wasn't even the top number one. Although with 200 people, like top 95th is probably like, there's like two or three people higher than them. Yeah. Yeah. And like I said, it was like 1.8 million cash and 4.1 million equity, which is weird because if you add those up, that adds up to 5.9 million, but the number was definitely 5.33 million. So Mm. I don't, weird math, new math, must be new math. Yeah, maybe. (laughs) The best paying region is the West Coast, followed by the Mid-Atlantic. Those aren't a surprise, but the third, the the Mid-Atlantic and the Southwest were tied. Although I guess since Mm. the Southwest is adjacent to the West Coast, maybe that's dragging it up. No, I think what probably pulling that up is the Austin and Dallas region where there's oh, huge IT right. going on yeah, in Texas. It. Yeah, that makes sense. The best paying industry is financial. Not a surprise. Also, not a surprise. A larger team and longer tenure will lead to higher pay rates. Revenue does not seem to be directly correlated. The numbers go up and down as you go up in revenue. Nor who do you report to? Directly reporting to the CEO does not mean the highest pay. Although I guess you could argue that if you're reporting directly to the CEO, you're probably not that big of a company. Maybe larger companies, you report to the CIO or something like that. Mm. I don't know. That's just guessing. They had some interesting heat maps on pay based on industry and size and how they relate to other companies in that in that area. So smaller companies rely more on equity. That's not really a surprise. Really small companies, you know, the the just over a billion ones pay less. Not really a surprise. The really large companies pay less. That was a little weird. Consumer. Hmm. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. No, no, no. I was just I was just thinking that's odd because you think the larger the company, the more responsibility, the more stress, the more aspects, you know, the more things you got to secure. It just seems that those would track more more closely together. Yeah, maybe. Uh, consumer retail and media pay less of a cash bonus than biotech finance and manufacturing. So if you want cash, don't go there. And technology pay seem lower than the other categories. Hmm. You know, there's something else, some other interesting things I noticed looking at the organizational issues. So the reporting lines had changed. There was a, there's a relatively large decrease in BCDR fraud and safety fallen under the CISO which I thought was weird from the previous year's report, you know, as if these things are moving under, you know, out from underneath the CISO into other parts of the business. And I don't know if that means they're moving up into like a, a, the global CISO or a, the CSO reporting and out from underneath the CISO or what's going on there. Cause that seems to be an interesting shift for those three things that typically I've seen 
at least safe, at least the BCDR being associated associated with CISO. I've seen fraud and safety more be tied to overall security teams of which the CISO or the cybersecurity may be a part of. But BCDR, you almost always, from my experience, has fallen under the CISO before. So maybe that's standing up new risk organizations or something that are pulling that the BCDR stuff over there. So I thought that was interesting. Be interested to see how this report comes out next year to see if this trend continues or not. Yeah, the safety stuff. I've I've definitely seen that be a separate, like a physical security role. Although not every company has that. And the fraud stuff frequently that's like an insider threat. Sometimes that's a completely separate organization. Huh. Yeah. But something else that was interesting in here was the risks, the per, the risks for the role. So hmm. there was a huge decrease in what the CISO considered a risk from a turnover perspective. Last year, it was 33. This year, it's only 15. That's over a 50% drop in concerns over turnover. And I thought that was interesting. And that, that may be the, you know, the potential for... Uh, recession and other economic issues that are reducing turnover now because people are more concerned about maintaining the job they have than finding a new one, maybe. And what was also interesting, based on the the numbers that Matt uh, just said, is that 19 of these guys think they're underpaid. (laughs) I mean, if you're looking at some of your people with equivalent levels and they're making, excuse me, they're making 5 million a year, I mean, you might be underpaid. Yeah, I'm skeptical. Yeah, I don't. I really don't think so. So they also asked what's next for CISOs. Uh, 41% said they were going to move to chief security officer. That was their expected next career step where they were in charge of both cyber and physical security. 22% were moving to private equity. 20% to CIO. Hold on, you want to talk about private equity? Well, I'm just... Well... That strikes me as odd because you've got CSO, which is a position, CIO, which is a position, CTO, which is a position, but private equity, that's not a position. That's more like a industry, right? Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, it makes makes sense. They're making they're making connections. Maybe they've got a good idea. No, I guess private equity, you know, that's entrepreneur. So private equity is investing. Maybe they're taking their, you know, one to five million dollars and they want to turn it into fifty million or a billion. Oh, so they're turning into day traders? No, it's not day traders. It's <laughs> it's it's what they do is they go out and they're looking for seed funding for new companies that need small amounts of funding initially. So I only I only I know a little bit about this from listening to a podcast that talked about it a lot. There's the seed round where you're giving like very small amounts of money, like ten thousand, a hundred thousand, a million dollars, very small comparatively. Uh, and that's to basically get them off the ground and get them to minimum viable product. And then once they're at minimum viable product, then you're giving them, you know, 5 million, 10 million to start hiring people and expanding quickly. Oh, so uh, it's like becoming a venture capitalist. Yeah, that's exactly what it is. Yeah. Okay. 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 So yeah, we just now, that had, makes uh, we just more sense then. I thought difference. they were moving into the private equity space as in, you know, in move, moving into that sector, uh, not that they were going to become uh, venture capitalists themselves. Gotcha. Yep. Yep. Well, with obviously with the kind of money they're getting paid, apparently that's an option. You know, I'm certainly not becoming, you know, moving <laughs> into private equity if I leave this job. You need a hundred bucks. I got a hundred bucks. <laughs> well, I appreciate it. I'll take that hundred dollars. <laughs> Let me sell you my product. I, you know what? I actually had somebody say one of the nicest things that I've heard to me the other day. I was, we were in a meeting and I was 
discussing an idea that I had and they were like, you know, I would not be surprised to see you owning a company for all these ideas you have at some point in the future. And I was like, that it may be the nicest thing anybody's ever said to me. You should have said funny thing. You mentioned that I'm starting a funny round. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Okay. So 20% CIO, 18% CTO. And I actually have a note here saying, aren't these the same? And I looked them up and they're not the same. CIO manages the company's IT operations infrastructure. A CTO is responsible for building technological products that meet the customer's needs. So, okay. so it's internal focus versus external focus. Yeah. Yep. 16% chief risk officer, which is interesting. That's usually a lawyer, right? Uh, a lot of times you do see lawyers in that position. Yeah. Not necessarily. 13% uh, entrepreneur, 13% retire, 5% CEO. So yeah, hmm. very few people expect to move to see CEO. And I'm actually even surprised at how high for CIO. I don't think I've ever seen a security person move up to CIO or CTO. I have seen one move into CTO. I've never seen one move into CIO. A CTO makes sense if you are a company that is creating a security product. That would yeah. make a lot of sense. Funny, but I have seen one move to CEO too. Oh, really? Interesting. But also, I guess technically he would have been an entrepreneur because it was CEO of his own company. So those, those hmm. two things maybe go together. But one of the things that I was surprised to see on the in the in this reporting was how long they were in their positions. So around thirty percent were one to two, three to four, and five or more, making the average four years. This and only surprise. a few were outside of the outside of those, or were less than a year. Because it used to be said that the average tenure for a sister was eighteen months. Yeah, so I guess what... that no longer holds, yeah, considering what... the numbers that we're seeing here. That's what I'd heard. I'd heard, you know, that they'd be fired or there'd be a breach or something and they only really lasted, you know, 18 months to three years. Yeah, or they'd gathered enough experience at that organization. They were going to move on to bigger and better things. Well, that's how they get their, their private equity. Their raises. <laughs> but all this is just informational. There's not a lot you could really do with this from a standpoint to improve your yourself or your organization. But maybe it's something to aspire to considering how much money these guys are making in that position. Yeah, yeah. So that's interesting. Again, you got to, but the, to get to that position, you got to be way more involved in the politics and the internal. Like it's not technical ability at that position, unfortunately. Although you have to be hopefully pretty good technically to get the opportunity. I guess that's not true. I guess I've seen a couple of people promoted there. <laughs> Yeah, but considering some of the uh, the CISOs I've known over the years, it's pretty depressing that they're making this kind of money. It's like you see those stats about, you know, the average CEO makes like 300 or 400 times. And I can like CEOs are more important than the average employee. But are they like a CISO? Like the, the median CISO makes 1.1 million and the average, you know, security engineer makes 120,000 or so to 160,000 or so. Are they, is the CISO eight times more? Would you rather have eight engineers or a CISO? I think I'd rather have eight engineers. Well, considering my experience with CISO is not really developing a decent strategy that the actually gets implemented, uh, <laughs> I would say that's probably true. But if you had a CISO that actually was a strategist and developed a good strategy for securing the organization, I would probably say that they were worth that. But the problem is, based on my experience, that's few and far between. Do you run into actually a CISO who's a strategic thinker? That's fair. 
Yeah, you know what? We've talked about this before, but you almost need two CISOs or you need like two VPs. You need one that's kind of the blue sky thinker and coming up with the strategy and one who's more of the operation specialist uh, that implements it. Because I don't feel like I've worked with too many CISOs or too many leaders in general that are both. I think that's why the CISO would have like an operations VP or something underneath them to execute on his vision. Yeah. But what I've seen, too many CISOs are doing or thinking about things in the VP space and not at the executive space. Speaking of executives, next section we're going to be working on, we're going to be talking about is the Biden-Harris administration national cyber security strategy implementation plan. Oh, this is super exciting. It is. And this comes straight from the White House. Well, they released a fact sheet that talks about the four pillar pillars of their implementation plan. Defending critical infrastructure, disrupting, dismantling threat actors, shaping market forces and driving security resilience, and then investing in a resilient future. Ooh, they said they're going to do oh, it. Oh, and there's uh, a five here. Forging international <laughs> partnerships for pursuing shared goals. I forgot there was five. Uh, but this this thing is huge. How many pages was it? 57 pages or something like that? pages. So we're not going to touch on the whole thing, but there were, are a few nuggets in here I wanted to touch on that I think could impact a lot of folks or could impact the industry in general. The first one being they plan on setting cybersecurity requirements across critical infrastructure sectors. So to quote the document, through the ongoing National Security Council-led policymaking process, sector risk management agencies, SRMAs, and regulators will analyze the cyber risk of their industries and outline how they will use their existing authorities to establish cybersecurity requirements that mitigate risk in their sector, account for sector-specific needs, identify gaps in authorities, and develop proposals to close them. Um, so it looks like, based on this, you're going to start seeing, regardless of which industry you're in, an increasing number of regulations around cybersecurity and what you do for cybersecurity for your organization, which means you're going to have to have more audits, more check-the-box drills, more frameworks. So just expect this to, I don't know, exponentially, but significantly increase the amount of what I would consider busy work and not functional stuff that's going to actually better secure your organization because you're going to be responding to these newly established requirements for whoever your regulator is in, in your industry. So not a real plus from my perspective. What are you talking about? Of course it's going to you just mandate that things are more secure and poof, they are <laughs> now secure. Yeah, because the government has done such a good job themselves. All right. The next one is draft legislation to codify the Cyber Safety Review Board with the required authorities. All right. To quote the article, the administration will work with Congress to pass legislation to codify the Cyber Safety Review Board within the DHS and provide it the authority it needs to carry out comprehensive reviews of significant incidents. Um, so the reason I think this is important because it kind of sounds like they're forming an NTSB for cyber. So there's an NTSB, which is the National Tra Transportation Safety Board. And when there are things like plane crashes and stuff like that, they go out and investigate. They try to figure out what the root cause is and publish document documents for people to consume in order to improve based on whatever went wrong in that uh, event. So I'm... Um, 
ambiguous about whether this is necessarily good or bad. There's a there's a possibility here that this could be beneficial in that there's going to be these definitive reports that come from the government that are going to have information in there about what took place during a, an event, which may mean that you're going to get more information about what actually happened in major security incidents that won't be obscured by organizations. I can't be certain of that, but this may help us get more information about what went wrong in major security events to help the overall cybersecurity space improve. Because the government's involved, I'm not cross, I'm not holding my breath for that. <laughs> but I'm 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 crossing my fingers that this might actually be useful. But uh, as I said, government bureaucracy, I'm pretty skeptical that it's gonna it's gonna work out the way I would hope it to. No, it would be amazing though to actually get a lot of I mean, it is nice what we see from Mandiant, but that's typically pretty neutered and gen generic genericized. I don't know if that's a real word. Generalized. Generalized. But that's only for the stuff that Mandiant does. A lot of the other IR companies don't release anything. So right. I would love to see something like that after, you know, in major incidents. Yeah. And the thing is with with the Mandiant or the uh, Verizon or whoever. That's if they're contracted with for that investigation. Yeah. Oh, Whereas yeah. this would be regardless of who, what, what security firm they, they contract with, this and the safety board would be involved. So I don't know. Could could be a plus. I would say I'm optimistic, but I'm not. I'm just hopeful, I guess. I mean, that's fair. That's uh, fair. All right. The next one is publish a notice of proposed rulemaking on requirements, standards, and procedures for infrastructure as a service providers and resellers. So the Department of the Con Commerce or the Department of Commerce will publish a notice of proposed rulemaking implementation uh, for Executive Order 13984 that lays out requirements for IaaS providers and resellers, as well as standards and procedures for determining what risk-based prevention approach is sufficient to qualify for an exemption. So this makes me nervous because that sounds like they're going to be much more involved in the way IaaS providers do what they do. So I don't I think this is going to actually make things worse. Yeah, I don't understand what is this is supposed to help that the market wouldn't already take care of. Yeah, I don't think it's going to. I think it's just yeah. them trying to get their, their hands more on the IaaS infrastructure, I think. Yeah. So you're going to see a lot more regulation come down around, you know, AWS and Azure and Google and Oracle and, you know, Bob's Cloud or whoever else is out there. I think those are the major four ones right now, which, like I said, I don't think this is going to be, this is not going to be good, I don't think. All right. And for those of you with Bitcoin, here's a good one. Uh, the, the Department of the Treasury will lead government stakeholders, including the DOJ, state and other interagency participants, and will work with international partners bilaterally and through the Treasury led delegation to the Financial Action Task Force to accelerate global adoption and implementation of anti-money laundering and countering the financial I'm sorry, the financing of terrorism standards and supervision for virtual assets service providers, including disrupting providers that enable laundering of ransom payments. The U.S. will continue to draft and contribute to recommendation 
15 related publications, including planning, material, planning materials for publication in early to mid-2024. This includes providing technical assistance to low-capacity countries and encouraging the FATF members to provide similar support. So in other words, they're going to start working with a lot of other countries to crack down Bitcoin transfer. What do you yep. call them, Matt? Exchanges. Yep. The, the laundering and the know your customer and yep, all that stuff. Yeah. So I think that's going to start making the use of cryptocurrency more difficult. At least cashing it out. Yeah. So obviously I see that as a obvious negative. <laughs> All right. And two more uh, that I think are definitely important. The first one being the advanced software bill of materials and mitigation of the risk of unsupported software. So in order to collect data on the usage of unsupported software in critical infrastructure, and the Cybersecurity Infrastructure Agency will work with key stakeholders, including SRMAs, to identify and reduce gaps in software building material scale and implementation. The system will also explore requirements for a globally accessible database of end-of-life, end-of-support software, and convene an international staff-level working group on software building materials. Um, so this is pretty interesting. A global database of end-of-life and the support software that is going to be very difficult for them to maintain <laughs> as well as you know i'm wondering if that means that software companies are probably going to end up having to subscribe to a service or publish stuff in a certain format to the government for them to consume it it's probably going to be my guess about how they're going to go about that and that if you produce bad, software actually. you have to subscribe to something i'm it's, Six and Taxi is not a great example, but something like that kind of framework to publish regularly your dates for your, your software. That makes sense, actually. I would love to see that. So, and you know what? If, as long as we're getting government interference, I if we're going to have the interference anyways, I would love for them to mandate that all SIM logs come in the same format too. Everything is a field value pair in JSON. Uh, and the next one is explore approaches to develop a long-term flexible and enduring software liability framework. So to quote the, the document, to begin to shape standards of care for secure software development and administer and the, I'm sorry, development, the administration will drive the development of an adaptable safe harbor framework to shield from liability companies that securely develop and maintain their software products and services. The administration will work with Congress and private sector to develop legislation establishing a liability regime for software products and service. So this is going to be terrible. Uh, and the reason that I say that is, you know, we talked before, I think several times uh, on this podcast about the concept of holding software companies liable for failure of their software to be secure or perform the function that you expect it to. And I think that the, the idea is makes sense because if you produce a product, it should do what you expect it to do in a safe manner. And if you produce software that doesn't do what it does in a safe manner, meaning it has security holes in it or leaves you open to other compromises, that's a problem. But I think that 
making companies liable for this could stifle innovation. But if they're going to go down this path of this adaptable safe harbor framework, what this tells me is that this is going to be paid play. So companies who can afford to pay the government to get this safe harbor framework shield applied to them are going to get away with having crappy software as long as they can reasonably convince their regulator that they're doing stuff in a secure manner. And smaller companies that produce software that can't afford to pay to convince the government that they're going to be able to follow this, this these secure development practices are going to get run out of business. So this is going to severely damage the small software development community and and shield the larger organizations from liability for the shitty software that they produce. So I think this is going to be overall terrible for IT in general, as well as for security. Interesting. I don't know. I actually looked at that and kind of like the idea of having SBOM available. Well, those are two different ones. So the oh. SBOM is one, 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 one section. Oh, and, you're right. Sorry. This is the secure development part. Yeah. And they're... this is the liability framework for secure software. Hmm. So like I said, I kind of like the idea of holding companies liable for their software, but I think there also, there's obviously downsides to that for, you know, the stifling innovation and things of that, because sometimes you're not going to be able to develop totally secure software in a timely manner in order to get to market for people to start using it and then improving it over time. But with this whole concept of the safe harbor, this is going to benefit the larger organizations and hurt the smaller organizations. So you're going to get smaller companies that could be doing great things driven out of business because they can't afford to check the boxes necessary for regulators to say, you produce secure products and therefore shield them from liability when their products go south. So like for instance, Microsoft, if you think Microsoft is not going to still release hundreds of patches every month to, to fix cybersecurity problems, you're going to be mistaken but they're going to be shielded from liability because of those software things. Just FYI for if you notice any weird editing in the last few minutes, I lost power and the recording stopped and saved the computer. Well, I had one more thing to talk about with that, but ah, I think the government heard me trashing them. And so they got <laughs> us down probably. <laughs> so the last thing I think is important in this implementation plan is Assess the need for a federal insurance response to a catastrophic oh, cyber event. Oh, I saw event. that. Yeah. So the Department of the Treasury Federal Insurance Office, in coordination with CISA and the ODCN, I'm sorry, the ONCD, will assess the need for a federal insurance response to catastrophic cyber events that would support the existing cyber insurance market. The administration will assess the need for and possible structures of a federal insurance response to catastrophic cyber events that would support the, okay, that's just repeating. So I think, you know, this is terrible. This is probably going to be extremely damaging to the overall cybersecurity market. Because if they're going to implement some kind of cybersecurity response or cyber insurance where companies will be able to pay the federal government for cyber insurance, then you start seeing them leave the, the commercial insurance market for the federal run, because I guarantee the rates will be less and 
And, there were, and they, since organizations already have federal requirements for other things, they're just going to tack that on to the insurance requirements saying, well, if, you, if you're already regulated and already meeting your regulatory requirements, then you're going to be qualified for this federal insurance. And once the federal government gets involved in the, in the market, then they destroy other competitors in that market because they can print as much money as they want to offset the issues with whatever that, that, whatever that structure is, in this case, insurance. Whereas a regular insurance company, they have to properly price the insurance, get enough customers to support the offset, invest in order to ensure that they have enough money to cover insurance, cover insurance payouts, et cetera. Whereas the government doesn't have any of those restrictions on them. They can print as much money as they want to respond to this. So they're going to drive out insurance companies from the subject market entirely if this actually goes through, which is going to be terrible. So I think cyber insurance is extremely important. And Matt and I, as you know, listen to this podcast for very long. We're very bullish, if you will, on the, the, the idea of cyber insurance and how it can really help cybersecurity overall. And you're not going to get that when the federal government steps into this, into this role of providing cyber insurance. Yeah, this is just like flood insurance. All it does is encourage folks to uh, build houses in flood areas over and over again. All right. Now, can we move on? Yes, you may move on. All right. So in our third article, we're going to talk dystopian AI and micro directives, courtesy of Bruce Schneier. He has some scenarios where he started with the hypothesis that we will all have an AI agent on our phone at some point in time. And this AI agent could potentially guide you through daily trials and tribulations. It can, you know, you can reach a street and it can tell you where you can legally cross the street. It can tell you, you go into a store and it will tell you, you know, what you can legally do in the store. You can have a conversation with somebody and it may tell you, you know, if you say this thing, you will be liable. You know, you may call them a name or push them or something like that. It can warn you if you're about to break the law which at first seems like actually a moderately good thing, right? Like there's so many laws these days that you inadvertently break a number of them and we'll talk about that in a bit. But the problem is, is not only is these AI making these recommendations, they could potentially be logging these recommendations. So if you decide not to follow the recommendation, not only could you potentially be breaking the law, but now you also have documentation that you're warned not to, and you are willingly breaking the law. So his, his theory here is that theoretically, somebody could combine all these AI agents and use them to enforce the law at a very granular level on an individual basis. Then he provides some examples. New York, Australia, and the UK are already using facial recognition to recognize shoplifters and provide alerts to source security. Breathalyzers are another example of automated enforcement of laws. And supposedly there's significant issues with how they work. But trying to get the source code and trying to challenge how they work has been very difficult. And he details years of legal battles and piles of money trying to challenge breathalyzers. So then he defines what are micro directives. They are small, individualized, specific directives that represent legal instruction. And he mentions that we actually already have these in a manner like DMCA takedowns or micro directives, you know, take down this video or this song because it violates somebody else's rights. And he's hypothesizing a future where AI can interpret the law to determine what the legally correct action to take is, and then inform all people involved, say from a potential shoplifter, you know, if you're about to stick it in your pocket saying, don't do that, that's illegal, to the security guard in the store, to the cashier, 
can inform the cashier, you know, what are your, what are you legally obligated to do in this instance, which in a lot of cases probably be stand aside, like, you know, don't be a hero, don't try and stop the shoplifter to the police officer outside. And this reminds you of a quote from Serenity and Firefly, where Mal is giving his big old speech at the end or near the, near the, near the, the crux of the, of the movie. Come a day, there won't be room for naughty men like us to slip about it all. And it seems like AI is making that happen. So now this seems like a fairly minor thing. In fact, this almost seems helpful, right? After all, most of us are law-abiding citizens. To have an assistant in our ear to tell us to make sure that we continue to follow the law seems like a benefit. Except we aren't. According to the book Three Felonies a Day, American citizens typically break at least three laws a day. Not necessarily felonies. Title's a little deceptive. I saw other estimates of five to seven times per week. I found a blog with the supposed top five crimes committed by average folks connecting to Wi-Fi you don't own and aren't permitted to. Owning a public marker in public, apparently that's a crime in several states because of graffiti. Watching movies or listening to music, which hasn't been appropriately paid for. Sometimes that's really obvious when you know you connect to a file sharing network and download it. But other times there's stuff uploaded on YouTube that shouldn't be uploaded on YouTube. And you don't necessarily know that it's a crime. Mm. Uh, using fake names on the internet is apparently a crime somewhere. Yep. And we're with, going straight to jail. We're going straight to jail. Betting with friends. I think that was recently legalized in Virginia. So I guess we're safe here. But I, I do know for a while that was a crime. Like uh, your brackets and the for March Madness. Now, fantasy football. Fantasy football, yeah. Then I found another blog with a bunch of other ones like littering. Again, even accidental littering. You know, you, you put, put some gum, you try to put the wrapper in your pocket and you miss your pocket. Speeding is something literally everybody does. Looking at your phone while driving, riding a bicycle on the sidewalk is apparently a crime in some places. Uh, eating or drinking while driving, not picking up after your dogs. I always pick up after my dogs, except for one day the <laughs> of other course week. You do. I couldn't, one day the other week, I couldn't find it. I swear that they took a crap and I could not find it. Taking a kid out of school without permission, also a crime. Yeah, this, you know, reminds me, makes me think of. You know, people are talking about, well, we need more police to be more secure or whatever. It's like, well, if everybody had their own personal policeman that followed them around all day, would you think that would be good for you or not? You know, yeah, and how it, would that it, impact what, how you acted and what you did every day, all the time? Yeah. How nervous do you get when a uh, cop starts following you? Well, it doesn't even follow you. If you're on the same road with a cop, what do you do? <laughs> you know, certainly not act normal. So an AI-based surveillance system it would basically end freedom as we know it, is his statement. And that makes me actually curious. Like, would you get arrested for the constant law-breaking? You probably couldn't. There's probably too many folks to actually arrest you. So would probably be fines. You would probably just, like, rack up fine after fine after fine. Should well, that really... depends. They would have to rewrite the laws then because laws have penalties associated with them. And if it's not a fine already, they would have to then modify all those laws to say, oh, well, instead of prison time, you would get a fine. Yeah, well, they they, they certainly couldn't arrest everybody <laughs> for all these. I mean, and most of these crimes, though, are fairly minor crimes. You know, littering is not generally a crime where you get arrested for it. Yeah, uh, well, mm -hmm. I mean, these are the crimes that we know about today. Well, wait until yeah. it's a crime to, you know, exchange gold for something. Or Oof. pay cash for something or buy uh, anything on the Use black crypto. market. It's um, crypto over at all to pay for anything. You know, pay cash for something, which then means you're not paying sales tax or something like that. I mean, there are numerous things that 
we do all the time or will, which, which could be outlawed in the future if the government started cracking down on it, if they have, you know, the CBDC or whatever, and you want to get around that and say, oh, well, I'm going to exchange turnips for, you know, sausages or whatever. Like, okay, well, that's not allowed. Then, you know, you're going to get fined or arrested for that. Yep. But the thing is, <clears throat> like you're saying, so many people do so many things that could be considered crimes. You can't throw everybody in prison. Yep. I mean, who's going to pay for those prisons if nobody's working because they're in prison? All those fine, all those fines. <laughs> the people that break laws that don't send you to prison. You know, yeah. I, 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 I couldn't remember the podcast, but I was telling Matt about this before we started recording that I was listening to an interview with a, with a, uh, I can't remember if it was a lawyer or a judge who was saying that laws need to be interpreted by people because you can, the, the, the laws as written and are written that way on purpose. And you can have two people interpret the law differently and they will both be correct in their interpretation of the law. And you can't have an, 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 a, a, uh, a law so narrowly interpreted that, well, not that you can't, but it'd be, it's detrimental to the overall legal system to have laws that can be so narrowly interpreted to ensure or to guarantee that whatever they're doing is in fact wrong versus yep. someone else's opinion on it. Yep. That makes sense. Yeah. And as part of this, Bruce asks, how do you challenge? I mean, we have the right to face our accuser. What is your, if your accuser is a computer AI, how do you cross-examine a computer AI? Yeah. I don't know. There's all kinds of weirdness here. So. One of the comments on the article actually suggested that AI-directed law could be good because it could create a law that was more uniformly applied across all folks as opposed to the way things are right now. But well, And if you, if you think that the wealthy or the politically connected are not going to find a way around this, you're freaking <laughs> dreaming. There's no yeah. way they would yeah. implement that. You know, that just shows how naive this person is because if they think that they would implement a system where you laws are guaranteed to be uniformly applied regardless of your class, you are sorely mistaken. <laughs> I mean, that's why Glenn Greenwald wrote the book With Liberty and Justice for Some, How the Law is Used to Destroy Equality and Protect the Powerful. That yeah. is not a, it's not a bug, it's a feature. Uh, just like tax loopholes are not a bug, they're a feature. You yeah. know, and this, this whole thing would kind of turn people into basic automatons. Because if you had to have a Bluetooth earpiece in your phone and say, okay, don't step off the curb now. You're going to go to jail. You know, don't turn left here. You, people are just going to, they're going to be robots, basically. It's kind of, I think it kind of equate to, if you've seen the Rick and Morty episode, the edge of to Morty and Rick, Rick die, Rick repeat where Morty has a stone which shows him the future. And he, oh, and he yeah. makes all his decisions. Based I do on, as the crystal says or something like that. Right. He, he, he makes his decisions based on the future that he thinks where he's going to end up with Jessica. Yeah. Although it's actually him dying horribly alone is actually what he was moving towards. But everything he did, turned left, took a step, said a word, didn't say a word, all that was based on what he thought the crystal would get him to this future. And that's exactly mm -hmm. what we're talking about here, where every person would be basically being moved throughout their life by whatever their phone or their AI told them they needed to do. This is freaking terrible. 
I hope this is just wild speculation, but he seems to think it's pretty imminent. I mean, it seems bees. Yeah. So what should you do about it? Panic. <laughs> yeah. Yep. This is definitely a place where you can pretend the democracy works for you. And let's be honest, like the rich people don't want this to happen either. So like maybe this is some place where the rich and the poor classes can combine. Well, it depends on they can get, if they if they're certain of their loophole ability or not. Yeah. You know, if they actually thought it was going to hold them accountable, there's no way. Yeah. If only. That's it. That's all the articles we have for today. Thanks for joining us and follow us at Serengeti Second on Twitter and subscribe on your favorite podcast app.